right, so welcome to episode two of the podcast. I'm Terry DeBow, teacher uh, and director of special projects here at Hawken outside of Cleveland. And I'm Julia Griffin, assistant director of the upper school for teaching and learning. All right. And so today we're going to talk about you going to California, which uh, sounds kind of nice. I was jealous at seeing your Instagram photos. It was snowy in Cleveland. And... It was not snowy there. No, it was not. All right. Well, before we get to talk about California, we have to do our thing, which was the best and worst thing that happened this week uh, outside of politics and, and the world and mm, all the rest. In the classroom. In the classroom. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I <laughs> the thing that I think... Um, uh, might be in the worst thing category for me this week um, was this moment um, in our class, which I know we're going to talk a lot more about in this episode. Um, but suffice it to say that we it's a three-week class, and we had spent the first two weeks convincing this group of seniors that, uh, that grades uh, are a really flawed tool, um, that they aren't helpful for learning, that uh, they are really have no place in school. And then we had this moment where we remembered that we have to give them grades. Yeah, that must have been confusing. In a week. Yeah. that Yeah. Because how do you do that and not <laughs> seem completely hypocritical right. and undermine everything that uh, they think you believe, which we, we do believe. Um, so that was a that was a sobering moment, well, and we, we, it provided time of opportunity for a good conversation. I'm sure it did. Well, we'll keep that as a rhetorical <laughs> question because I don't know what I would do other than like give them grades, I guess. But uh, so mine, uh, I'm not teaching right now, so it's great. I'm preparing, and so I was I was telling Julia earlier that uh, that before, like at the end of a class, it's exhausting, and you're like, why I never wanted this again because I'm so tired. And then before a class, there's still the sense of like imagination and creativity and like look at the magic that can happen i know how the play is going to go and this that you know the third act is going to kill right so I, i've had a little bit of that as i was planning my you know and i get to teach these fun classes i'm doing screenwriting i'm doing a class on popular culture and media literacy and i'll do a journalism class so they're fun um but i was in that little moment of of imagining what school could be right? that's the best that that's the great best. it's also good when you're doing it but at the end, where you guys are, and you have to grade it all, and assess <laughs> then you're it in all. the messy just, reality. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. So, all right. Well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, and to help us out, we actually have a guest of some acclaim, uh, <laughs> head of school Scott Looney. Um, hi, Scott. Hey, how are you? Uh, great, great, great. Um, you and Julia are teaching a class uh, together. Um, you guys are just back from the Bay Area, where you uh, uh, took a bunch of seniors and you did some investigations, which I actually don't know much about, so I'm going to ask you questions so you'll tell us. Um, but the class is called uh, Redesigning the Ideal High School, so um, we'll get into to what that means. But um, let's start at the start, because we're, we're hoping that not everyone listening knows Hawken or what we do. So let's explain what this thing was. We have a, a system here called Intensives, um, and they're three-week classes that happen twice a year. But can you talk a little bit about, you guys have been doing this for a while, what intensives are, what their logic, that the rationale behind them are, how long have we been doing them? Talk a little bit about that. Sure, I'll jump in. Um, yeah, about eight years ago, we changed the schedule dramatically to try to find ways to add depth to the high school curriculum. You know, the, the American high school curriculum tends to be a mile wide and an inch deep. And so one of the ways we did that is we pulled basically one course out of a student's fall and spring semester and then gave every course more time. So we were able to finish the first semester at Thanksgiving, um, which meant that the period of time between Thanksgiving and the winter break, which is always the same amount of time, um, 
the students go to one class all day, every day with the same teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that actually is more instructional time than a semester course. So it equals a semester credit. And they do it twice a year at the end of the first semester and the end of the second semester. Um, And these intensives allow you to focus on one thing, no other courses. And because you only have one course and one teacher, you're mobile. Um, we're a one-to-one school, so our kids have laptops, so we can take them out into the real world to solve real-world problems and do complex projects, which is what this course is designed to do. Right. That's fantastic. So even right now, we've got students in like Vietnam. What else? Like At this moment, yeah. where are people? Where are, where are Hawken kids? Yeah, they're all over the globe and the city, frankly. Um, they're in Vietnam. They're in Spain. Um, in Spanish immersion, um, and they're doing homestays in both of those places, which is pretty interesting. Um, in the Bahamas, they're at the Island School studying marine science, um, and and then they're they're all over Cleveland as well. Um, oh, and in Boston, um, we have that's a right, class. Creativity. Yeah, exactly on the creativity. Um, that's in Boston and visiting folks at Harvard. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I I, I had my first encounter last uh, spring. I taught my journalism class, and converting a semester class to an intensive was um it was challenging conceptually as I thought like how am I gonna and this is probably one of the issues here how am I gonna get through it all right <laughs> as if that was the goal is <laughs> just yeah. to plow through and then what ended up happening is the kids had far richer yeah. experiences and the fact that we didn't finish in cold blood was probably the least consequential <laughs> thing that could have happened right because right. they were able to do so much more um, from the experience. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm persuaded that it's a really powerful tool. It, it definitely changes the way you think about time and learning and what the point of your time with yeah. students is. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So it sounds like an intensive is a probably a good launching pad for a class called designing the model, uh, the, the ideal high school. Um, so, uh, I read some initial reflections you asked for kids and, uh, to ask kids to write and one struck out, stuck out to me and I wanted to read a little bit of it. Um, it was written by a senior boy, uh, and this is what he wrote, um, unnamed. I'm very excited to work on this project. I'm particularly excited to work on creating the kinds of experiences I benefited from in my time in real world problem solving courses. This kind of education was a turning point in my self image and in my understanding of my abilities. A lot of the points Mr. Looney made resonated with me. Maybe school has been hurting me, but the system I'm in has made me feel like I was the only part that was wrong. I felt stupid for a long time, and I don't want kids to feel that way, so I'm excited to be part of the future of education. Yeah, and I, the, what I would say is that having spent a couple weeks with this young man and watching him, um, he's an atypical learner, um, but he has some extraordinary skills, and he periodically figures that out, but the closer we get to traditional instruction, the more confidence he loses. Yeah. Um, when we get him out into the world solving problems and being the point person with agency and voice for his team, he looks like a rock star. And when we make him do kind of the normal rhythms of school, you know, call and respond, and we don't do very much of that, but we do a little to keep the trains moving. Uh, it's funny. He it's like a turtle pulling his legs and head in, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, and we keep just saying, "Hey, you know, focus on your strengths. You've got some extraordinary ones." And the sad truth for you is that you're gonna shine when you can get out of the traditional model of education. Yeah. So is that what led you guys to teach the course? The sense that uh, for too often and too many kids, um, 
school can kind of interrupt growth, even if it tries to inspire it? Yeah, I mean, I I have been teaching for 16 years and I've I've taught so many students who by the time they come to my class already have decided that they're dumb <laughs> and that they're they're not a good writer, right? Yeah. And so they they come in um and that they've internalized those messages in such a way that uh they're demotivated and they're, you know, really nice kids trying hard, but they already feel like they have this sense that they're not one of the smart kids or that school is not for them. Um, and often then they turn their passion, I think, to co-curriculars um, where they have a lot more choice and they feel like they have agency and and voice and um, they can really shine. Um, but they feel like the classroom isn't made for them. Right. Yeah. Though, honestly, I also think that um, for a lot of kids who are successful in the traditional model, um, it doesn't it doesn't work as well as it seems to. Right. Um, at least that's what I believe. Right. Um, I think there are so many kids who are really successful and they're encouraged to just push, push, push themselves um, to their limits. Um, and, I, and at the end of the day, it's I think it's so much of it um, feels like it's not as purposeful right. as it could be. So th- this is around the idea of sort of the mental health and the well-being of students. And what one reason to redesign school or to imagine an ideal high school is to address those concerns. Right. Are there other motivations for designing a class like this? Yeah. Only in school do you get judged in ways um, that have relatively high consequence or high stakes three to eight times a week. Um, you know, there's a reason in, in the real world, if you get a performance evaluation from your supervisor, at best, it's quarterly. If yeah. you did it every week or every other day, all your employees would quit. Um, people grow best when they're proximate to someone who is mentoring and coaching them. Mentoring and coaching is advice and guidance, and sometimes it can be direct and some kind of be hard to hear, but it doesn't go on your permanent record. Um, these kids, um, particularly the ambitious ones who really you know, want to go, think that everything they do is high stakes. Um, it leads to a kind of academic PTSD um, that is really tough to watch. It's why our school a few years ago launched an effort called the Mastery Transcript Consortium. There are two elements to the summative judgment of kids that show up on their transcript that are toxic. One is grades. The other, and I'm starting to think might actually be worse, are Carney units. The idea that everybody gets their final grade at the same time. The idea that every group of kids should be at the same place at the same time. It serves a wonderful purpose as a sorting mechanism. But guess what? It's good for teachers. Yeah, but it's not that much fun to be sorted. Um, and by the way, it's not even that much fun or to be sorted to the top of the pile. Um, I used to think that, you know, okay, maybe the system creates winners and losers, and maybe that's how the world is. What I've come to realize is that with a little more time, most of the kids on the bottom of the bell curve can make can achieve as much as the kids at the top if you give them more time. So the idea that we all are supposed to finish our achievement by the end of the semester um, is really unfortunate and sad for kids. And the idea that teachers are forced in a graded system to judge kids two or three times a week um, and then add it all up at the end 
gets in the way of coaching them, gets in the way of being their mentor, gets in the way of, you know, kind of putting your hand on their shoulder and saying, you know, you can do this. Trust me. You just try again. Uh, They don't want to try again because you just gave them a C minus. Um, So, and they don't either like you, trust you, or trust themselves. And watching that happen over time and get worse with the inflation of both selectivity at the college level and the inflation of grades at our level, um, this toxicity in the system is getting worse. And it's getting worse pretty quickly, actually. And so finding ways to design around it and, and including the actual um, people who are living school in the conversation felt like a pretty exciting yeah. idea to Julie and me. Yeah, so let's dig into it. Like, what what was California like? Where, uh, where'd you go? <laughs> um, I know you went to the design school at Stanford. You went to the Apple's Infinite Loop. You visited some urban charter schools. You went to the Con Lab School, Google. I assume you, you know, went to Fishman's War. Like, what'd you, what'd you guys do? What'd you see? Um. Well, we uh, we saw some pretty pretty shiny and pretty exciting places that I think live mostly in the kids and most of our imaginations more than they than we remember that they do in reality. Um, places like Apple and Google and Stanford, you know, occupy this place in the in right. the imagination. Um, and uh, and it was striking, I would say, to see how um, powerful some of the patterns were that emerged in our time in those places um because they were disparate so we were meeting with scholars we met with um we met with denise pope um and with joe bowler who's a mathematician um, and a math educator who's world-renowned um for her work particularly on mathematical mindsets Mm. um and growth mindset and how important it is in math education um and we met with folks at the d school um k-12 lab at stanford the design school um who took us through a terrific um collaboration activity that was totally experiential where we just threw the kids in they just threw the kids in and us um and then we processed it afterward um so there were uh there were tons of inputs for the kids is what i would say from a lot of different directions some of which had a lot to do with k through 12 school but some of which very purposefully didn't yeah. um and what we were hoping, I think, that they would take from it was um, that they would get some ideas from within the world of school that might inspire them, um, but also that they would see some things that aren't traditionally part of school and maybe start to wonder, well, is there some aspect of the way learning works at Apple that could be helpful to them? Like the way learning works for real people, real professionals in their work lives. And is there any element of that that maybe should inform the way that we think about how adolescents learn as well. Yeah. You know, there was, you could sort of uh, take the trip and put it into two categories, the stuff we planned for and the stuff we didn't. (laughs) Um, For sure. And to me, my big takeaway was the importance of experiential learning, the importance of getting kids out of traditional settings and out into the world, because uh, we just read the kids' reflections on the trip. And for at least half of the ones that we read, the most meaningful parts of the trip were the stuff we didn't plan. Um, it's the seeing the, the gap between unbelievable wealth and incredible poverty and homelessness yeah. in the same city in, this, at, in real time. And seeing the challenge of a city that is you know, growing faster than it can manage and seeing hearing from an Uber driver who inherited her grandmother's $30,000 house in Palo Alto that's now worth $2.8 million, but can, <laughs> but can still barely make ends meet and, right. and, and is really worried about keeping up on an Uber driver's salary. 
it it really put the kids in a place they didn't expect to be. And that kind of unexpected destabilization is where they you can see them, literally see them start thinking differently. And yeah. and in that kind of being outside their normal box and comfort zone, you know, you they they started saying things that surprised them in terms of the way they were processing the world. I think the other thing my takeaway was, you know, we saw some you know, urban charter schools in economically um, challenged neighborhoods. We saw, you know, some independent school, well-resourced independent schools. And and what I think most of the kids figured out at the end is that context matters. Um, that, you know, whatever your local context is, the educational system and approach has to be tailored to that set of realities yeah. and goals. And, and, and uh, you know, that it was fun watching the kids – just make meaning from things that they right. didn't expect to see. Yeah. And not to make too obvious a point, but it sounds like the opposite of school, which is essentially <laughs> right. an artificially constructed set of experiences right. where we kind of know what's supposed to happen. Yep. Exactly. Right? Yep. The lab's over in 10 minutes. You got to find out what happens when yeah. water and potassium meet. Right? Exactly. So, yeah. Well, and honestly, that was, that's actually what Scott and I were talking about yesterday. Um, that, uh, for all the, the visits, all, for all those official visits were, um, really helpful and inspiring to the students. And we can, you know, say more about some of that too. Um, we reflected on the role that Uber and Lyft um, yeah. and our cab driver conversations played on the trip, which They're was the best interviews ever outsized, like way more than what we would have thought. And I think part of the magic there is that everybody knows the kids know, we know that we couldn't possibly have planned it. Right. Right. And so there's a way in which you want to pay attention. That's different. Um, cause it's just a real person who unprompted you say, Hey, you know, what do you think about the changes that have happened in the Bay area? Right. And then they want to tell you about how the last 30 years of living in San Jose and now how the whole world has come to Silicon Valley, right. but they're not sure they can afford to live there anymore. Right. I mean, it's, uh, it, I, th- I think that for, for a lot of the students, those kinds of interactions really, yeah. um, are things that are going to stay with them. Yeah. 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 So, so after you, they the students had these kind of experiences and they're processing it all. What what priorities do you think are emerging as they imagine designing an ideal school? Like, what do they think are what do you think they think are the most important parts of this a sort of imaginary school? Well, we're going to find out today. They have their, sec- their <laughs> second share out where they have to give us an oh, annual yeah. report on. So, what's your what, what give us your best guess? What do you think uh, they're going to say? You know, I think they're what they heard from the experts and what I think they saw in the in some of the schools that inspired them is that learning by doing experiential learning working on authentic projects where the assessment is the actual value of the work product just got reinforced over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the things we had made a point to share with them before we started um, that some of the traditional markers in the industrial production model of education might need to be worked around. Um, were reinforced by the scholars at Stanford, the most innovative schools we saw, and frankly, you know, the messaging from Apple and Google to our kids was incredibly clear, which is <laughs> was that? Know, don't get all wrapped up in your academic achievement because that's not what we're going to be looking for um, when you come looking for a yeah. job here. Um, yeah. What did they say? Well, I mean, I, just to, to build on what you're saying, I would say that the um, the – the importance of the desire to learn and yeah. curiosity and self-motivated mm-hmm. learning came across in a huge way. So John Sherm, who's an alum mm-hmm. uh, and who 
is now the director of um, executive compensation or something like yeah. that at um, at Google, uh, talked about how a member of his team, I think, um, you know, came in and was a designer at Google and then started to get interested in coding and ended up going to night school at Stanford, all supported by Google, and then transitioning to working in programming and that that kind of path and ongoing learning is really important. So they have all these in-house learning opportunities and out of house, but you have to figure out what you need and how to get it in order to do the job in front of you or figure out what the next job is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of people there to help you and guide you and answer questions. And it was clear that it was a really supportive, encouraging culture. Um, But there's nobody who's going to tell you here are your assignments for tonight. There's no, yeah. So the hierarchy is not, and the, the motivation and the the um, curiosity and the drive and the self advocacy and all yeah. of those things they right. have to be coming from you. Right. Yeah. yeah. The con- the commitment to continual learning. I mean, was so clear in every setting that w- that we had, and the idea that whatever content you may have mastered in school, it's actually those it's actually the skills that are going to carry you forward, not so much the content, because right. the content we're going to care about when you work for us is going to change so fast that. You you just have to be a great learner. Right. And, and the other thing they said is you have to be a great teammate. Mm-hmm. You have to know how to partner with a variety of people who have a variety of skills and a variety of viewpoints. And you have to have the capacity to sort of know your role on a team and to both advocate when you're supposed to and step back when you're supposed to. And those were the two themes. You have to be a continual learner and you mm-hmm. have to be a great teammate. Yeah. And unfortunately, traditional school is set up for the kids to individually compete against each other. Right. You know, we call collaboration in school cheating. Um, so, right. So, in the real world, if you're if you have to help a teammate get something done on time, you're considered a great employee. Right. Here, it's considered cheating. Right. And so, um, the, the juxtaposition of those two systems it was stark for the kids. They they saw it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 so interesting to think about the whole point of education is to prepare you for life and what you encounter in life is like every most of what you just did it like, not that it, useful not that useful like <laughs> no counterproductive it, actually it's often <laughs> i mean you grew up right you're now 18 that's or 22 that's better than when you were 14 i'm glad you're applying at 22 not 14 but in yeah. between yeah so yeah. but obviously there's the the process of going to school and going through classes and all of that does develop skills so this isn't necessarily an advocating mm-hmm. that you you know, we don't go to school, but yeah. it is basically reimagining how yeah. we use this time yeah. to best prepare kids. But you can imagine a a, a person who can uh, write beautifully, speak clearly, um, read deeply, um, understand, um, is very numerate and understand how measurement and numbers can define patterns and strategy. That person's really useful. Uh, but the content you use to get there isn't as important as people think it is. It is the skills. Right. Um, and you have to go to school um, yeah. with knowledgeable adults who can help you learn to read, write, be numerate, be a good teammate, think strategically. But if you give teachers and students some latitude on content, um, both how much so you can go deep mm-hmm. um, rather than broad and what type. Uh, you can spur intrinsic interest. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt that in almost every high school, there are electives. Right. Well, electives have one common denominator. It's what the teacher wanted to teach and right. the student wanted to take. And I'll bet you, on average, if you surveyed high schools in the United States, what classes do you like most? 
the electives are going to win. It's not just because they're fun. I would argue that a well-taught elective um, is every bit as rigorous mm-hmm. as the kind of mandatory curriculum. But when a teacher gets to put themselves and what they're passionate about into their class, it's contagious. And when a kid gets to volunteer to be on that learning island because they're interested, the starting point is, you know, standard deviation farther down the track. Uh, And that's really, to me, it's not the content. There is no such thing as a skill without content knowledge. But it's not about the content knowledge. Content knowledge is a necessary component of learning a useful skill. Yeah. And and the buckets. I'm just going to add add to that. I completely agree um, that the, the the content buckets that we have for a very long time thought had to be the buckets in a high school education. And I, I'm saying buckets, but I really mean you know the departments right. um, and the yeah. traditional disciplines. Um, I think one of the things the kids started to think about was well maybe primarily studying things in these separate disciplines is not actually the best way to learn them. Um, There was a great moment at Stanford when Denise Pope um, said, remember when the the Thai children were trapped in the cave earlier this year? Um, Did somebody come in and say, hang on, this is a biology problem. We need to bring our best biologists. (laughs) Like, or did they say, nope, this is a psychological problem because they've been trapped in there forever? Or did they say, you know, no, that's not what happened, right? Right. You you wanted to bring together great problem solvers and people who have complementary skills and expertise to try to solve it holistically because that's that's the way the world is. The world right. isn't segmented out in that way. By the way, um, problems in the world are much more interesting than the artificially constructed right. problem, problems yeah. that are meant to narrowly be just a biology problem. Right. Because right. yeah. they're constrained, right? So right. All the artificial ones, we have all these yeah. other things. Most of the structures in schools are constructed for the convenience of adults. Um, the way we use the calendar, the way we use the weekly schedule, the way we organize um, learning into disciplines. It's not – There's the, the rational argument that it's good for kids is a really hard one to make. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I've never seen one anybody make it credibly. Yeah. It So because the most important person in the conversation doesn't get a vote in the construction typically, which is why we created this class. We wanted to put the most important person in the entire equation, which is the student, into the conversation. Right. What would a exactly. school that prepares you for the world you're going to live in and the future you want to mm-hmm. have, what would it look like? Yeah. And you know these kids. Uh, you know when you when you ask them to think past the boxes they're used to playing in, it's really extraordinary yeah. um, where they can go. So I know we're not done. You guys aren't done with the class, so I can't ask you like so what they come up with. But <laughs> can you, as we sort of end this, think of uh, the best story you have uh, from your time in California of a kid having one of those moments? Um, and and what do you think they'll end up suggesting? So something specific and something general. Do you, Put you on the spot. Can you think of something? Mm-hmm. I think for me, the most um, meaningful moment was uh, uh, one of our students, uh, an African American girl who's awesome, high energy, great student, um, was really impacted by a visit to an urban charter school. Um, and and she is first generation. She's first kid in her family who will go to college, and she's always seen herself as somehow different. Um, uh, than many of the kids who go to Hawken. And she then saw an urban charter school where their whole purpose is just to get kids to to think about going to college. Um, and she found, um, you know, that that 
in so many ways she's had privileges she was unaware of um and that from birth it was never a question in her family that she would go to college it was never never once occurred to her that that was and she was seeing a whole school organized around just hoping to inspire kids to think they can and i think uh that was really impactful for her she you could see her processing it through the whole trip and and as we've watched her evolve her project um you know elements of fighting for socioeconomic access and diversity and social justice and equity are are clearly centered to her design choices in this project and it might have been anyway um but i think those have been enhanced yeah. by that experience so i mean the idea of an ideal high school is not just for the for this this particular student it's that yeah. uh, schools are are tools for yeah. larger social change yeah. that seems to be yeah. part of what happened there yeah and and she definitely internalized that you you could you could watch it happen yeah uh, how about you julia the story I'm thinking about um, comes from our visit to Google. Um, right after our visit to Google, we were walking to the the light rail station in Mountain View, um, and I caught up with a student and asked him what he thought. And he said, you know, it was really interesting. At lunch, I got to talk with the, the designer who had um, spent some time with us, and uh, it was just so cool to hear about his job and what he does and what he gets to do. Um, and, you know, I've always been... I've always been really interested in design. I've always really liked it. Um, but I I kind of felt like what I had to do was keep on just taking this series of honors and AP classes and like the hardest classes in the school, um, really, and just keep on pushing myself that that was what I was supposed to be doing. Um, but I kind of wonder now, like, it would be really cool if school helped you figure out what you were interested in and yeah. then you were able to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really interesting to me to see this student um, who is like very driven, very motivated and focused um, to see him starting to envision a path that is more flexible um, and not just like a lockstep march right. um, towards some definition of success. Predetermined definition yeah. of success. Exactly. Right? It's such a profound yeah. idea because, you know, we often think of teenagers as sort of like they're self-centered and they're self-absorbed yeah. and all that sort of where maybe if you took that energy about thinking about themselves and, and think like, <laughs> what if you used it to carve out a future that was like exactly. that yeah. built on your strengths and, you know, was right. creative and about you, but not just about your like momentary needs, but yeah. was much deeper. It seems like right. designing a school for that. Yeah could be a useful enterprise. Yeah, yeah, I actually think the critique of kids and millennials being self-centered, you know, I understand where it comes from, but I think the the place of blame is completely wrong. Um, we've created a system where the kids get great benefit from only worrying about themselves. Right. Um, it, you know, again, like I said, collaboration in school, accepting co-curriculars is cheating. So if you've spent your whole life thinking that in some ways for me to succeed, it's a little bit of a zero-sum game with my classmates, of course you're going to be worrying about yourself. That's what you've been trained to do by the adults right. in your life in, in the most high-stakes thing you've been told is, is happening, which is school. Once you move them in an environment where collaboration, teamwork, is central, which is athletics, performing arts, right. speech and debate, outdoor leadership – you see very different kids. You see the the complementary and empathetic kids that I think are in there. But you put them in a setting where the reward system is all about worrying about yourself, and they look selfish. Yeah. I don't think they're fundamentally selfish. I think they're being trained by the system 
to be selfish. Yeah. And I, that to me is the great unfairness here is that kids are doing what they're told to do, which is to go to school and take it seriously. The system is encouraging them to not worry about the welfare of others. That's right. what the system is not, it's not designed to do. And, and if you do that for 18 years, not surprisingly, maybe you don't have the empathetic muscles that right. you ought to have to be the collaborative, um, um, team oriented person yeah. that we'd like you to be in the world. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, I know we're all excited to see what they come up with. That's coming up next week or so. So we have a video cruise and to come and, you know, <laughs> take videos of the presentations, talk to the kids. Excellent. So uh, all of our legions of podcast listeners can go to the video to see what ended up happening. Um, anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming in. Thank Thanks you, Scott, and Julia, for taking Thanks, the time. Terry. And uh, for anyone out there still listening, thank you. Um, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, to subscribe to the newsletter, go to the website, do all those things. Um, and uh, we'll catch up with you next time. So thanks, guys. 